0: The Accidental Engineer. Welcome all. Max of The Accidental Engineer here. Today, we have the pleasure of Peter Cooper joining us. Welcome, Peter. Hi there. How's it going? Great. Great. Uh, for our audience that aren't familiar, Peter runs perhaps the most popular uh, email newsletters for software developers in the world. Uh, Peter himself, is you're located in the UK. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah and
0: uh, has been doing this for quite a number of years. How many years have you been doing this for, Peter?
1: Wow, it depends what you mean by this, exactly. But, uh, <laughs> I guess, I yeah, guess the email you, newsletter, you, yeah. Yeah, if you're just talking about the newsletters, then uh, technically about seven, eight years now.
0: I know for audience that aren't familiar, you've been involved in the Ruby community from early on. Uh, yeah. Do you mind sharing with our audience maybe a little bit of background about how you found your way to the Ruby community whether the Ruby community had anything to do with the founding of Cooper Press?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you could literally go all the way back to when I was a kid. I don't remember when I began programming, but I was programming at some point. I've seen the photos to prove it. Um, I very much was an 80s kid uh, in terms of playing with the home computers that were around at the time. Um, I seem to recall like the Commodore VIC-20, which is kind of a precursor to the the Commodore 64. So anyone who is suitably old enough uh, to be listening to this, Um, to remember the 80s you know you'll remember all these machines that were out at the time back before we kind of everyone standardized on or let's just use pcs for everything we had so many different machines with different variants of basic running on them and a lot of us uh, spent a lot of time typing in code off the back of magazines into into them and uh, running games and stuff like that it was a interesting era i don't know if you got to experience any of that
0: this is this is we're talking pre-internet right now right
1: Pretty much. Or pre-everyone pre everyone having the internet. Um, but, yeah, so I kind of just came up through that, and it was just really a hobby and just fun. And, uh, you know, it wasn't something that I even, like, considered as a job or anything, because obviously I was just a kid in the 80s. So, um, you know, who knows what the future was going to hold. So I never went through school or anything thinking, oh, I'm going to be some hotshot programmer or anything one day. Uh, I still I still am not, so just to reassure you. Um <laughs> But one thing I was always interested in at school was um journalism and they sort of said, Oh, yeah, maybe you should sort of go into that a bit and I was like, Oh, that's not a great idea. I, I prefer arguing with people. So um or I used to, um, before I realised it was kind of a futile thing to do. But uh, so I thought I'd become a lawyer. Um, so people can just hate me even more now. But uh that didn't happen. Um I kept programming, kept programming, just did it for fun, uh wrote loads of sort of demos with Turbo Pascal and C and stuff like that in the 90s that's sort of where I came from Um, and I did start building software once I sort of left school and everything I sort of you know it was one of my skills Um, I sort of had a very brief career in the what's called the new media scene um, in the late 90s with uh, web design and so forth because it was something I was just kind of not necessarily good at but i kind of knew all about it so i could blag my way into a job um and that kind of happened a couple of times but i just didn't really get on with the scene and the whole vibe of how it worked so i ended up working for myself um building software for people in Perl of all languages um and i did Perl pretty much non-stop between about 96 to 2004 and then one day I was on Slashdot, which was one of my favorite sites at the time. It's still going, but i never go there anymore. Um, <laughs> but it's worth looking up if you want to see a proper old school geek site, dot org. And they had a post all about this thing called Ruby on Rails. And I was like, what's this? Like, they're saying, you yeah, know, this is a great new way of building web apps. And I was a bit of a stick in the mud. I was like, oh, I don't want to learn a new language. It's kind of like, you know, it's... This seems too new and fancy for me. I can't be bothered. I, I, di- I didn't really like programming. I just could do it. And so I just made a bit of money from doing it. It wasn't my passion by any means. Um, But I thought maybe I can use it. So I had a look. I thought, I don't like this. I thought, let's just re-implement what they've done. Some of these concepts that are in Rails that look really cool. Let's put them into Perl. So I gave it a go and it didn't end up very well. Like it was a real mess. And I just completely like screwed it up basically. So um, eventually I caved in. I had this project to do for um, a customer that was to build a photo gallery online. And I just thought, Oh, let's just give rails a go, follow the tutorial and just go through and get it done. And I literally had the project done in like 24 hours and you know, the customer was happy and everything. And I was like, wow, that was easy money um and i was kind of hooked at that point and i began to learn ruby and having been a blogger for several years by that point i started blogging in 1999 before like even the term was used um kind of relates to that journalism stuff i guess you know i was always interested in writing about programming and stuff that i was doing and um it all kind of progressed from there so this whole idea that i was you know writing stuff and coding at the same time and perhaps sometimes coding to write and to share information like that was very much a thing that kind of coalesced around that, um, sort of 2004 to sort of 2006 period. Um, and that's kind of the basis of, you know, where all of this began.
0: And how did it come to be that you, I mean, obviously the background from, uh, new media and early blogging, uh, got you probably interested in, uh, different ways of perhaps finding content and promoting content, but what ultimately led to Cooper Press.
1: So the next step of that little story was that because I was doing all this blogging, I was kind of approached by a acquisitions editor for a company called A Press. They're a technical publisher. I think they're still around in kind of a a type of form. They have been acquired by a bunch of people. But back then it was a a UK based uh, publisher. Um, and they reached out, and they wanted me to write a rails book, and i said well i don 't think i 'm good enough to do that, but I 'll write a Ruby book because I really want to learn Ruby and I can write this book as I go along and <laughs> like learn it and I did that, and it was actually you know quite a good success in the end it sold you know it's, it's definitely sold sort of fifteen twenty thousand copies in that kind of ballpark, so it 's not been too bad for a um, you know a first time book really um, but from doing that, I thought let 's start a blog to help promote." the book because that was the thing back then it was like if you've got a business start a blog like that's the way to make money obviously now it's start a podcast which you know you've done a, you know maybe you're not making like loads of money off of it but it's one of the things that the industry talks about if you want to make a presence you want to get known start a podcast um back then it was create a blog so i created a blog uh, called it ruby inside inspired by a comment by uh, jeffrey Grossenbach of uh, peepcode um now well, he sold it to plural site and kind of semi-retired i think um but uh it kind of came from there i just ran this daily news blog promoted my book on the side and everyone's happy um this progressed for you know several years i kind of had this other startup that i was running in the background that was all about uh, rss feed processing um this isn't really a key part of this whole story i guess well maybe it is because like i sold the technology of this startup it wasn't you know a ton of money, but it was a, a small six figure sum. Uh, I used that money basically just as a runway, I guess, just to sit and mess around with a blog for a few years. Like, you know, I was literally just running a Ruby blog. That was my job. Um, so
0: I know this is a, a fucked up question to ask, but yeah. uh, I think there may be a share of our audience that might not fully grasp what RSS feeds are. I mean, okay. If, if somebody just, came onto the scene, uh, maybe two years ago, uh, even, I don't think they would know what an RSS feed. So for people, we can blame Google for, yeah. Killing Google. Yeah.
1: Killing the Peter, yeah. Um, all right.
0: Yeah. What was the cultural impact of RSS feeds?
1: <laughs> RSS was really huge in the early days of uh, blogging. Cause it was kind of the way that you let people know that, you know, you had a, a new blog post up, um, nowadays people have got email newsletters and stuff like that, which have really sort of taken over this space or they just tweet and things like that. Back in the early two thousands, we didn't really have any proper social networks other than things like LiveJournal and stuff. And it wasn't really for this type of thing. Um, so once you put a post up on your blog, it kind of produced this extra file on your server called an RSS feed. Um, all of the main news sites and so forth and blogs you know, now still have them. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably put the RSS feed, into your podcasting software which um, is quite well hidden nowadays like if you're using things like the the apple podcasting whatever it's called I can't remember the index you know that it's got it kind of hides the RSS from you but it's basically this file that is an XML file that has information about what is the latest thing and what's the you know what items are there and what's the title and the content and so on so I built a system in Perl believe it or not um, with the front-end web app in uh, Ruby and Rails, um, to take these RSS feeds and rip information out of them and then let you kind of syndicate them or republish them elsewhere. Um, it wasn't quite like FeedBurner, which was a, a big company in that space. It was more like if you wanted to put your um, anything in an RSS feed onto your own site, you could make it process other RSS feeds and then spit them out onto a site. And you know, we had a, a bunch of customers, different sort of media companies and things like that. And... Uh, I ended up selling the technology to a Russian company who was still running it as far as I understand it. But uh, that kind of gave me a little runway to think, well, I don't need to, you know, I don't need to panic about money for a couple of years. So I just built this blog up, um, the RubyInside.com blog, which is still kind of there, but I'm going to delete it soon because it's literally died. Like it's not relevant anymore. Um, and it's WordPress and WordPress is scary to leave hanging around if you don't update it. Um mm-hmm. And so I was kind of running this blog for several years, and you know it did really well. We sort of got up to thirty-five thousand readers, which nowadays sounds quite small, but at the time was quite big, uh, especially in a space like Ruby. And I just kind of saw the email was coming along uh, again, like it was there was a real renaissance going on. And um someone that is is quite well known on Hacker News called Jason El Baptiste did a couple of blog posts in around two thousand nine, two thousand ten about the kind of renaissance of email and he's saying, you know, there's companies like Groupon using it. And uh there's a there was an email list called Daily Candy, which sold to Disney for something like twenty or thirty million dollars. Like it was a big thing. And um there was this system called Helper Reporter Out where uh, you could send in story leads that you had and all these reporters would get hold of your story leads. And vice versa, they could send in we're trying to do these stories and you could reach out to them and say I fit that story. And that sold for something like 10 million or something ridiculous. So you were saying there's always companies that are using email at the core of their service and they're making money and you know they're selling and this that and the other so i was like i want a piece of that um email fits in perfectly with publishing of course um and it also gives you a schedule as well if you have to publish every day or every week or whatever it is i went with weekly and i launched a ruby weekly mentioned it on the blog and overnight you know we had sort of one two thousand subscribers um and at the time you know the plan was i was just literally just gonna have this one newsletter. And I was going to use it to promote uh, some workshops that I was running at the time. So I was running online workshops over a very similar, like a, like a Google Hangouts type system of the, of the time. And I would teach people about uh, things that you could do in Ruby, how to improve your Ruby programming, all that type of thing. And um, they were, you know, running really well. Like I was making sort of $10,000 a time with that. Um, you know, I could sell sort of 30 seats for $300 each or whatever. And there you go. Like, and that's just like two days work. Um, you know, do that every month and you've got a job, like, you know, you're doing well for yourself. Um, and that was the plan. Like I was just going to use the newsletters just to keep saying, like, do my workshop, do my workshop. And there you go. Like almost perhaps a bit like a, almost like a Wes boss kind of approach. Um, obviously he releases a lot of stuff and you know, you pay to do the course, but this was kind of more money, but smaller number of people, but then you still use emails as a funnel to get people in the door. Um, but I just found I wasn't really, like every time I did the course, I just wanted to change it. And I was I was never happy with like teaching. Like I could do it, but I never felt like I was doing a good enough job that I could be confident with doing it. So people reached out to me and said, we want to sponsor the email. We want to put our stuff in it. And I was like, well, if I'm not going to put my stuff in it, let's put someone else's stuff in it. Um, and it went from there. And, you know, from there, we just took a domino approach with everything. We're like, what? technologies of people into Ruby, you know, people who are doing Ruby, what are they into? They're probably into JavaScript. So we did JavaScript, we did front end and just domino, domino, domino. It was that whole Facebook style go from one college to another. We went from one topic to another.
0: So to start with Ruby was the way to go Hmm. these days. What is the way to go?
1: oh that's a bit of a, a 180 uh there isn't it <laughs> um what you mean you mean like new programmers coming in now
0: yeah yeah i mean when it comes to what what are your you guys are seeing as the most popular in terms of content and subject matter uh for email
1: news so There's multiple answers to this. What we're seeing as being the most common, uh, you know, most popular is because we choose a certain number of topics to cover. So we're not covering every single topic under the sun. So if Java, for example, is blowing up right now, like I'm not super into that area, so I don't know exactly what's going on Um, in our space. However, it's JavaScript, like is the number one. Um, React, obviously, as well, kind of as a as an ancillary part of that, and Node again as an ancillary part of that. So it really is oriented around those, but you know, that's not going to carry on forever. Like I'm, I've been around programmers for long enough now to know that, you know, the latest fad is always just the latest fad. Like JavaScript has a lot of benefits and it has a lot of reason to have a lot of longevity, especially with being in the browser and so forth. But there's so much excitement over WebAssembly now that perhaps something around that space could end up being the next big thing. Um, You know, if people just get sick of, doing things the JavaScript way and another language becomes so natural to compile for using for the web, who knows. Um, But yeah, like JavaScript is where all of our growth is pretty much right now. But, you know, more broadly, if people are listening and they're like, well, what should I learn? You know, I think other languages like say C sharp even are still absolutely fantastic languages to learn because they just really get you into a particular ecosystem. And if you're working that kind of Azure dot net space like that's the language to use and i would still you know strongly recommend that but we don't cover that area unfortunately um and again python is one as well that it seems like now they've got over a lot of the issues that were happening between the transition between python 2 and python 3 the growth has come back like there was it kind of felt like python plateaued for a few years but in the last year or two it's really taken off again and i'm kind of kicking myself that we didn't start a python newsletter a bit earlier on when we really should have. And we kind of looked at acquiring some, but it's never quite worked out. But yeah, so Python's another big language out there too, but uh, for us, definitely JavaScript.
0: I wanna encourage our audience members to go check out Cooper Press's newsletters. And we'll of course include uh, links in the show notes. Mm. Uh, what, just to give people a sense of what it takes to run a newsletter like this, you struck on how frequently maybe you email and you were describing the the thirty person courses you started early on. Mm. How how have you guys how do you guys think about uh, email frequency and just how much people really want to engage with an email newsletter about programming topics?
1: I guess the way I thought about it early on is just like, what what can I tolerate? Um, and I don't just mean like in terms of me producing the thing. In terms of like if I was subscribing to this, what could I put up with? So <laughs> I don't know about you, but like definitely at that point i didn't subscribe to any daily emails like it just wasn't really a thing um i know it's definitely more of a thing now there's quite a few out there um especially from like the inside network which you know they've got a lot of email newsletters as well they do a lot of dailies um and i subscribe to like a podcasting newsletter as well called um pod news and that's that's daily and actually it's it works really well because it's it's so bite-sized like compared to what I do, that it's almost nice to see it every day and just kind of have that rhythm. Um, but I decided to go with weekly just because A, I could produce weekly and B, that's what I thought I could tolerate. And that's also like where the amount of news there could be. Like if you're in a space like Ruby, for example, you know, it's it's a fun and it's kind of a popular space and there's people building libraries and everything, but every day, like that's not really going to work. And if you want to <laughs> start getting to like monthly there's no there's not really a business there like it's harder to turn that into a business just because of the amount of inventory that you would have to sell to and sponsors and things like if you were just doing it to promote your own thing like a course or a workshop or a book or whatever or even a podcast monthly could possibly work um and if someone was out there and thought oh i couldn't spend the time to do a weekly newsletter and i could do something monthly then just still do it because like unless you're doing this as your 100 percent day job like you don't even need to think about that sort of concern um so we went with weekly and it's kind of stuck almost as a branding thing as well um and this is again something i think i probably regret is that it's helped us early on saying oh you know we're ruby weekly we're javascript weekly but the thing is people have then gone to some of the others so like there is a python and i know the guy that runs it and everything like it's all cool um but i've had advertisers reach out to me and say oh we want to sponsor python weekly and it's like well sorry that's not mine (laughs) And we've kind of almost got this kind of weird ownership of the word weekly in the context of a programming newsletter but the thing is we don't really have ownership of it like we can't say to anyone else that's doing a weekly say oh you can't do that because it's such a generic word you couldn't trademark it even if i wanted to like and i don't want to like i'm happy if other people want to do stuff um and so there are issues regarding things like that and i think maybe we should have branded a little bit more early on but um that's again, perhaps another lesson. If someone's listening to this and they want to build something, like put your name in it, like even at least, like even you know, at least make it like, you know, Jane Doe's whatever weekly. Like at least, then people are going to associate it with you. Like I don't know. I just think that's a good way to go nowadays.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. This is a a topic that, as a as a host of this podcast, I'm deeply interested in. Is when it comes to the types of format of content that you guys promote and distribute through the newsletter, besides obviously sponsored content, which Mm. is how you guys run your business. Uh, by and large, it's dominated as I understand by written content and that written content may include, uh, you know, code snippets. It might include, uh, link rich articles that, you know, are listicle type content, but what do you think prevents, uh, Uh, audio content or video content from breaking through and, and being uh, prioritized in your guys's newsletters or, or am I mistaken? Uh, Do you guys promote video and audio content? Yeah,
1: it's it's slightly unfair, but if if you look at the percentages, it probably is something like sort of 85, 90% would be textual. I think that actually, actually accurately represents what's going on out there. Um, You know, most people, especially if you see like threads on Twitter or Hacker News and places about screencasts and stuff, you always get loads of people commenting, like, oh, like, I always prefer articles. Like, I don't like video. I can't follow it and it runs too slow and blah, blah, blah. blah. So there's all these kind of arguments. And when you do a poll, people (laughs) want to read articles like buy in in the large. Obviously, you know, I see the value in all these other things. And we have frequently featured, um, like when there's uh in the go world there's um like the state of go talks and things like that and we always feature them like really highly just because they really summarize what's going on in you know the world of the go programming language every time they come out um so there are situations where we feature you know, video, and especially if it's like a conference and they release all of their talks, I'll often do like a a group post and say, oh, there's 26 talks from this conference, and these are the ones that I checked out and I thought were the most interesting, and um, we'll link to those individually. I'd say we probably, in a, in a single newsletter, link to perhaps one or two videos a week um, and occasionally a podcast. I think a podcast is a little bit of a hard sell. Um, we just see this in our click numbers you know this is what we monitor non stop to see what people are clicking on and it is a harder sell you know we tag it as a podcast and so on but you know you've probably seen with a podcast like it grows in in fits and starts like it depends on who you who you've got on um but then even if there's a steady stream of traffic it's you got to convert people and get them into like subscribing and it's it's a long it's a long process it's not something where you can just do this overnight and it's just bam like a, an article where you can have you know 100,000 people from hacker news just turn up and oh, we liked your article, we've moved on now. Um, to actually convert that into something with a podcast is real hard work. And that's why you're know, having that audience of however many subscribers you've got, but let's say you know you had 10,000 or 100,000 or whatever it is, like that's really considered valuable in the podcasting space. Now, this is also true for email. So you can always have like a a pyramid of value of what a follower is worth. So you could say perhaps on Twitter, you know, one follower is worth a certain amount of kind of kudos, as it were. Um, but one person on your blog is worth more because they're reading your content in full. But then one email subscriber is kind of worth a bit more because they're getting what you're you know, putting out every single week. And that's even more valuable. But then one person subscribed to your podcast or your YouTube channel may be even more valuable because they're engaging with you in this much more high fidelity way and they're really devoting to listening to this half hour show or whatever it is like that's a lot more effort than it is just to read your tweets every now and then so yeah mm-hmm. i kind of got off on a tangent here but i guess i'm just trying to stress that you know different media have different values um and that's partly why you know you can get some much better cpms and things on email which is obviously a key thing for me um but it's true of podcasting advertising as well um as opposed to you know throwing a tweet out which you know even if you've got and we've got um 350,000 followers on our uh, javascript daily account on twitter so that's basically just stuff from the newsletter reposted um sometimes we add graphics and you know comments to it but that's about it um but the traction that we get on there is tiny and compared to the traction that we get with like the 150,000 that are on the newsletter so it's half the number of people but put out 10 times the click throughs and engagement so Yeah, when you're you're dealing with media, you really have to think about what each media is like, and they're all very different, basically. Mm -hmm. Just
0: as an aside, when we started this podcast, The Accidental Engineer, and we've tried both audio-only content, uh, video content, and also even text-based content, our hypothesis with doing interviews like we're doing right now is that A lot of people, when it comes to content production, like blogging, like you were saying earlier, hit a wall with writer's block. (laughs) And one of the genius uh, differences about interview format content, it might not get as much engagement in a newsletter per se as maybe a how-to or a listicle. Mm. But the, the genius of it is it just annihilates writer's block because you get two people, Two people have an opportunity to take a moment, breathe a little bit, think about what they want to say before saying it. But naturally, there's going to be commonalities and interests. And without needing much preparation, <laughs> I won't say that our episodes are underprepared, but without much preparation, you're able to put together content um, maybe faster than you would if you're just sitting there at a keyboard and you know compiling a listicle. Um, but Different, different people, different moments in time. It's really eye-opening. Like you were mentioning about email as a channel, people being more engaged, even so much more engaged by like an order of magnitude mm. versus a channel like Twitter. It's like, where, where are they when they encounter your content? And the beauty of email, like you guys have uh, as a property, is it's a guarantee of recurring traffic. Whereas podcasts, there's not a whole lot of infrastructure about subscribing. Like We definitely have subscriber, active subscribers who give us active feedback about episodes that they're listening to through their subscription platform for audio content, but email is just a super powerful channel. And I, I don't think it's going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I think people should, should go along, check out Cooper press, sign up for the mailing list. You know, yeah, it hasn't gone anywhere uh, yet, but, uh,
1: who knows what the future will hold. But, uh, yet. yeah. I mean, email, you know, it's been around, mm-hmm. I think the queen sent an email in sort of 1985 or something ridiculous. So, you know, <laughs> email has been around a long time. I don't think she's probably using it now though.
0: Well, s- speaking of email and its longevity. I know a topic you guys have been vocal about, and it's a decision you guys make when compiling links for your guys' newsletters, but examples like (laughs) medium.com of web properties that are trying to create walled gardens. I mean, Gmail is reaching, uh, dare I say, monopoly size market share in email, Uh, and medium similarly, maybe not the same level of monopoly whatsoever. Uh, there's a lot more lock-in on your email account than on your medium account, but, uh, what's your, what's your take on the future of hosted content? Like is, is, do you think medium will be around in five years or, uh, how do you guys treat content published to, uh, hosting provider like a medium?
1: Will medium be around in five years? i tell you, man, this is, this, this is an answer that could probably get me in a lot of trouble if I said the wrong thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Oh God. Um, I genuinely don't know. Like the amount of disdain I'm seeing for Medium right now is pretty much obviously at an all time high. um, With some of the things that they're trying to do with their their Ward Garden, and worse than that, like I came the other other day, I came across a Netflix technology blog article. So this is their technical engineering team writing an engineering post, um, and it was behind the paywall on Medium and that makes no sense because like netflix want to like show how good they are at engineering so that engineers and you know people like us or whatever will think oh i really want to work at netflix this is a great idea well why are they putting their technical content behind a paywall and it turns out that actually it was a mistake and medium had some kind of default setting that if you you know check a box that says uh, you know i want this content to be promoted like around the network like in the sidebar of other blogs or whatever um it automatically puts you into the Thing allegedly, so um, and I got sent screenshots of this, but I don't want to put put myself too much on the record with this. Um, but it sounds like, yeah, there's some issue there regarding content going into the paywall that you perhaps didn't expect to go there. And I've spoken to our medium guru in the office, um, because I don't get involved with medium, like I've we have, um, you know, I have several employees, one of them is a medium expert, and he's like, Oh, yeah, he's like, One of our posts ended up in there, and I'm like, How'd this even happen? <laughs> like, um, so it seems like there's some sort of weird dark pattern going on that's causing an issue there. So if they're gonna keep doing that, it's not gonna be good news for them, is it really? Um, at least not in the technical space, because you know, I don't mean to blow our own trumpets too much here, but when someone starts to mess around with techie people in with dark patterns and things like that, they tend to get very vocal and they tend to just move away in droves. And, you know, we're even seeing this with relatively minor things like the apple keyboard issues and stuff like the amount of technical people that are like oh i switched to windows or you know this that and the other and just because of the keyboard like tech people are so vocal about this stuff so if there are tech people you know and especially developers publishing on medium in five years and they've not changed radically in how they approach offering a platform for writing then i can't see them having that audience Mm -hmm.
0: just to dial back a second to share with our audience who might not know about the dark pattern that medium is pushing is that medium correct me if i'm wrong monetizes through uh paid subscriptions and what they've increasingly been doing uh, and hiding from publishers is pushing a a full page popover uh, that when you go to visit a medium article maybe even clicking through on a link in a cooper press newsletter uh, instead of seeing the article, you get a full-page popover and it prompts you to sign up for Medium's subscription paid membership. Um, and yeah, like Peter's describing, uh, people are surprised. Yeah, they, they make you want to be <laughs> the Netflix. Publisher, yeah, they want to be the
1: Netflix of blogging, but what I can make out.
0: Of course, yeah. Yeah,
1: it's an enviable, enviable position.
0: But yeah, no, I, I think, uh, I think the that's a harder market to corner for sure than email hosting. And and I think the scarier one, and I I have no doubts, Gmail will, will exist five, five years from now. Do you have any doubts about Gmail existing five years from now? The
1: only reason I'd have doubts about Gmail is because Google just seem like they want to shut everything down at all costs. Like they're always just closing random services down and, you know, I know lots of people who are like, look, I just can't use Google Cloud Platform because I can't trust whether like any one part of it might end up getting switched off at some point or another. Like, they've just got a reputation for it. And I think it's really costing them big amongst more um technically savvy users. But uh Gmail is so well entrenched and so heavily used that I would be extremely surprised if they ever closed it. Um at least, you know, not within the next five to ten year kind of time span. Um I don't know if they make much money from it. They definitely do with the um, the Google suite, where you know, where they're charging people what is it like $10 a month each or whatever to use it, but um, I'm not mm-hmm. sure if normal Gmail, I don't know how heavy they are on the ads at the moment because I don't get any ads in my personal Gmails that I have because I don't know why. I think it's because my accounts are like ridiculously the old, um, you know, I've been using Gmail constantly since 2006 when you know, sort of just after it came out, so um. But some of the newer accounts that we've opened for, like doing testing and stuff, seem to have ads all over the place. So I assume it's making money for them at some level or another. Um, so I'm hoping it stays. But I think one of the key things about Gmail is that Google have quite smartly just stuck with the normal protocols of email. Um, you know, if you're sending mail to or from it, it's working with you know IMAP and it's working with SMTP under the hood and all that type of thing. And as long as that's still there and that still exists, it can't be really its own walled garden. The, the only places that they've really yeah. added unique kind of functionality that it's hard to nail down elsewhere is how this like spam tracking works, for example, which as we've learned in the last few weeks is allegedly run using TensorFlow, which is their uh, kind of, it's, it's not exactly a machine learning framework, but it's essentially, let's say it's a machine learning framework that, uh, you know, they've thrown a ton of spam into it and they've trained it and they've thrown a ton of not spam into it and, trained it and now it can work out what's spam and what's not and they can't always quite tell you why something is spam or why it's not but a machine's figured it out somehow um which only makes you know people Mm -hmm. like mine life harder because it's hard to know why you're going into the spam folder now which we don't tend to but there's you know i know other people have run into this issue so yeah that's the only kind of ward part but it's really a part that's just improving or attempting to improve the experience for the, you know, the people that are using Gmail, it doesn't actually affect how you interoperate with it, unless you're sending mail on mass like me, and you want to make sure you don't get in that spam folder, then you do need to kind of do a bit of testing. But no, I'm quite happy with how Google have stewarded Gmail. Um, of course, you know, and one thing I did shut down recently was Inbox, which was a kind of an experimental uh, reimagining, let's say, of Gmail, uh, that, you know, quite a few technical people really got into, but they just closed it down. They are just, like, oh, we're not doing this anymore. Uh, go back to normal gmail we put the stuff in that was the best bits um, and i've seen people like crying foul over that but you know it's uh you know i would say they've done a good job overall
0: i realize there's sampling bias here but <laughs> perhaps perhaps over the years you guys have, having as large an email list as you guys have probably have some perspective on what's happened market share wise in the email client space it, I mean, are, what, do you mind giving a ballpark percentage of of how many of your guys' email subscribers are Gmail versus otherwise?
1: I literally have no extremely up-to-date numbers on this. It's something I could do, but it's just something I'm not super interested in. But the last time that we did do numbers on this was a couple of years ago, um, and it was something like 85% Gmail or something like that. It was you know ridiculously high. Uh, now, I know that's not true of the email space in general from people that i've spoken to and you know public statistics i've seen but i think it's just more that technically savvy people are using gmail in a higher quantity than anyone else um whereas there's other people like such my wife for example i can't just i can't convince her to leave hotmail um for love nor money (laughs) so um and you know there are there are definitely developers using it as well because you know we we do have people using hotmail but it's tiny tiny number um in fact we've actually um recently blocked any at hotmail.com accounts subscribing to us um, just because we were running into this issue with, um, I don't know who it is, like fraudsters or whatever, but they were like subscribing using Hotmail accounts and then trying to like, you know, there were people hitting the spam button on, you know, confirmation mails and stuff. And I was just getting sick of it. So um, I just, you know, got rid of it. So I don't know what the deal is there. I, we, We've kind of got this weird issue of over the last year in particular where it seems that people are getting a hold of like public email lists and then trying to like subscribe them to our newsletters. And I can't figure out why. Um, I've never really got to the bottom of it. I know a lot of weird shenanigans going in the email space, but we've just put, you know, put captures on and stuff like that. And we're you know doing IP reputation and stuff like that to uh, really get a hold on it. And we seem to, you know, be winning the war on it, but yeah, there's some weird kooky stuff going out there in the email world. And it's, uh, you know, if you're not involved with it, you'd be probably a little bit surprised. Like, there's always shenanigans going on and, um, you know, people are doing all sorts of things to make sure their emails get delivered and stuff like that. There's always services out there to help you get stuff delivered. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a fun space. Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, as far as web properties
0: go, beyond having a sign-up page, are you guys entirely uh, email business? Are, are there any – do you guys ever direct traffic to your own content?
1: Very rarely. Um, I mean, I do some YouTubing, but very, very sporadically. Um, we have a Medium publication, believe it or not, called Daily JS, um, which is actually, I think it's something like the thirty, uh, the 35th biggest publication on Medium or something. Um, it just kind of came from having that big Twitter following. And if you create a publication that is based off of a Twitter account, it automatically subscribes all of the people that are following you on Twitter to the publication um a little known thing about medium actually it's it's a way of like if you've got a massive twitter account you can have a massive medium account almost by default um and that's been growing actually so that's been going really well we've had people just submit articles we run them for free we don't run any ads on them um it's just like we just do for fun really um and it gives a site more to link to so we've got that but you know there's no money in that um we have all of our archives which you know are always very popular but no we don't have any content sites at the moment, but. it's something we are working on um, something that you know, I'm very keen on doing is actually just paying people to produce content. Uh, there's so many sites out there that, you know, trying to get you to write for free or, you know, share stuff. But I would really like just to see some more very finesse, high quality, you know, content out there. And I've got all these things that like oh, I really could you know think this type of article would work because you know, I've got the stats of what people will click on. Um, from a newsletter so I know roughly what content people are interested in and what they want to see Uh, I just need to sort of pay people who are good at writing to actually produce the content Uh, and that's one of the next things we're looking at doing so we should be on the web at some point in the next couple of months but uh, yeah that's uh, obviously a totally different ball game to doing the email but we have started doing stuff like interviews and things in some of the newsletters that we include at the bottom so it's kind of helping us warm up a bit with stuff like that Uh, I just think that's one thing that we're going to start doing to differentiate ourselves from other people that are doing email newsletters. Now, you know, there's quite a few individuals doing them. Uh, and you know, they're really, really knowledgeable about their space. So I'm trying to cover lots of different spaces, but if they know like everything there is to know about say Azure functions, for example, they could do, you know, a better newsletter because they're like always in it. Uh, they're doing it every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably the only newsletter they could run because that's they're the one thing that they do. They're an expert at that. But, it just makes our job as a generalist kind of approach a little bit more difficult. And I think part of what's going to keep us more interesting is that if we can engage some of these experts and actually have them write for us, then, you know, that's kind of a step forward.
0: So final question, feel free to, feel free to punt on it. Um, (laughs) I, I think, I think it's kind of well known among software engineers that sponsorships for, uh, engineering content usually are around uh primarily recruiting uh employers who are wanting to push uh jobs listings for software engineers uh mm-hmm. and then secondarily maybe uh sas products or developer tools yeah. products and uh, could you maybe speak to uh what what seems to be the trend in, in who wants to sponsor software engineering content
1: so I'm not actually the person that handles all of this stuff anymore. This is one of the benefits of me having employees <laughs> is that I manage to like, you know, extricate myself from all the parts of the business that I'm not very good at or just not interested in. Um, however, of course, I get to see all of these sponsors coming through and you know, I talk to my sort of second in command who's in charge of all that stuff. And yes, you're right. Um, I would actually say the recruiters kind of come second and the SaaS comes first, but um you are broadly right uh you know, there tends to be a lot of sort of monitoring tools and um, things of that nature. I mean, to be fair, I mean, the best way of looking at this stuff is it's all public out there because you can just go to our newsletters and look at who's subscribing to them. And, oh, sorry, who's sponsoring them. Yeah. Um, and I know full well, actually, there's a quite a prominent podcaster in our space um, who runs an entire podcast network for developers. So you could probably might be able to figure out who it is from this. Um, but I know full well that he's gone through all of our. He's he's sent our email newsletters to um, some people and said like, go through these, find all the people, and then hit them all up and try and get them to sponsor us. Yeah, I only know this because he does a podcast about his business, so he's actually you know said all of this publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, it's it's kind of how it works. And the funny thing is, we don't work like that just because we've just been so lucky with what we do that we have we actually have. Like, one of my managers was celebrating because she actually lost a sale the other day um, because it gave space to someone else that she wanted to put in. Like, we have too much demand and not enough inventory. It's kind of our problem, um, which is a really nice problem to have. But uh, yes, recruiters are one who will really be willing to kind of go the extra mile to make it in. Like, they fight amongst each other, um, you know, and I don't want to sort of like, name any of them but you know there's there's all the obvious ones in the space and they're all very keen to get into um particular publications you know and especially if they can do it without the other ones getting in as well so there's that kind of jockeying going on which i'm not involved with on a daily basis but i just get to hear about some of what's going on um but then also direct job listings as well you know that's another thing which um is a bit of a harder sell because it's more short term people generally don't buy job ads for like six months in future but on a weekly basis, if you've got kind of some sort of set up for that, there is a market there. Um, and, you know, we've capitalized on that as well. Uh, so yeah. Um, oh, I guess actually training and workshops is another one. We, you know, one of our longest term sponsors is a company called front end masters um, that I very strongly recommend them actually, not just because they're a sponsor, but because, you know, I've got to know the the people there and the courses they produce are just ridiculously high quality. They, what they do is they basically fly someone in um, like, you know, the top experts in JavaScript and things of that nature, they get them to stand in front of a, an actual class of people who've paid to be there. They record it, edit it, and then they put it out online kind of also like a plural site type subscription type deal-y. Um mm. And that seems to work really well. So um, they have been, you know, with us from the start and they literally every single month, you know, they're, they're sponsoring something. Um, and so that type of thing, if you've got an audience like us that is very remote and, located all around the world, then if you're offering online training, then win-win. The one thing that hasn't worked for us, I mean, you know, just to share kind of a negative story, I guess, is promoting real-life events. And I was involved with real-life events for several years because I uh, chaired O'Reilly's Fluent Conference for, uh, I think it's five years, and I chaired OSCON for one year. And I got to see behind the scenes of how events work. And, you know, this is probably a whole other podcast topic, to be fair, Um, but how... You know, events are promoted, and they really struggle to know how they got how they sold a ticket. Like, you can ask someone at the door, like, Oh, well, you know, who bought your ticket, or how did you buy your ticket? And they're like, I don't know, like, my boss gave it to me, or um, I don't know, I got it for a prize from somewhere. Or, like, there's so few people at some of the big ticket events that say, Oh, yeah, I, I spent two thousand dollars on this ticket and I thought I saw it in this newsletter, or I heard about it from so and so. Like, that's the minority. Um, mm-hmm. and so this is the issue. Like, we have. A few sponsors that run events, but we have to discuss with them up hat you know, first up that they understand that they're doing it for the exposure. And that kind of sounds bad. But the thing is, it actually works, but they're just gonna f- struggle to really justify it. And from a pure numbers point of view, they will, you know, spend ten thousand dollars on an advertising campaign somewhere and they'll sell fifty thousand dollars of tickets, but they can't track any of it back. And as long as they're prepared for that and they know that's how that's how the game works, then we can we can work. Um Makes but sense. we're very quick to dissuade people who don't understand that. Makes sense. So to sum up, SAS
0: product sponsors, uh recruiting sponsors, and then uh training and certification type sponsors. Uh, we've actually had on as a guest uh an instructor from Frontend Masters, Steve Kinney, who's a, a JavaScript oh, guy. But yeah. No, this is super educational i hope our audience appreciates uh, peter coming on the show making time for this um peter thanks for coming on no it's been great thank you very much for more visit us on itunes or our website at the accidentalengineer.com